a science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we present true personal stories about science. I am your host, Liz Neely, and this week, we're presenting stories about independence. Welcome to our episode, Out on My Own. So this weekend in the U.S., we are marking 244 years since the United States ratified the Declaration of Independence. I was just rereading that document, and the first sentence states that people who are seeking to dissolve political bonds should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. In other words, they need to tell their stories. And then the second sentence, which is one of the best known in the world, assigns to each of us certain unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And our storytellers today have a lot to share from their journeys and respective pursuits of those things. So let's get to it. Our first story is from Sean Hercules. It was recorded in October 2019 at the Burdock Brewery in Toronto, Ontario. The theme of that night was Lessons Learned. So I'm living in Barbados. You know where Rihanna's from? We actually went to high school together. Fun fact. Anyways, I am fresh out of undergrad and I'm wondering about what, what my next steps are. Will I go into medicine? Will I go stay in science? Like, what are my next steps? Can I do both? And I'm just wondering about all of these things. So I just take a break from studying and I continue working as a DJ, a gospel radio DJ in Barbados. So I'm quite known and quite popular within the Barbadian community and the Christian community there. And yeah, pretty much everyone knows me there. So I'm going along my way. And after one of my interviews on the radio, I talk with this couple and they tell me about this Master of Public Health program. And though this isn't directly related to science, I say, yeah, this this definitely piques my interest as it's somewhat related to medicine and I could go into medicine as a pathway from this. So I apply to the Master of Public Health program, I get accepted, I finish it. And now I land my first job as a research assistant on a health-related project. And I'm really excited. It's my first office space. I have a cubicle. I have workmates. I have this cool project. And I'm really pumped about it as I've always been curious. And my curiosity has always led me to try to answer all sorts of questions in science, health, whatever. So I'm pumped about it. However, um, things are not going amazingly in my love life. So I have this relationship. It's been three years and it's ending pretty awfully at the moment. But with support of my family and my friends, my workmates, I'm making it along. Um, so throughout all of this time, I just decide to just take a break from it all. Because in addition to all of this happening, I'm also feeling as though I might reach a plateau because it's in Barbados. It's so small. There are so few options for me to excel academically. And I also am not fully comfortable. I can't be myself. 
You see, the person I was dating at the time was a man. And I couldn't necessarily be open about that as a Christian celebrity in Barbados. So I just get invited to LA and I decide to just step away from all of this and go to LA. So now I'm in LA. Tall trees, fast, expensive cars, the fashion. People are walking with little dogs in their bags. And I'm like, oh my God, I can live here. Why am I still living in Barbados? I need to get out. I feel stifled and I just, I just need to get out of here. So I'm standing in the middle of Santa Monica and I'm like, no, I need to get out. So I rush to my hotel room. I turn on my lamp at the computer desk. I pour a glass of wine and I start typing away feverishly looking for PhD programs at UCLA, of course, because I love LA. So I am looking for professors, scholarships, the entire works, and not just in LA. I'm looking in Taiwan, Australia, just to let you know how desperate I was to leave Barbados behind. And three weeks go by, I'm back in Barbados now, I'm still looking for PhD programs to no avail. I'm exhausted, I'm just looking and finding nothing. Professors don't really have money for international students, right? So I eventually just give up at this point and I make a simple prayer to God and I say, God, if I am going to do a PhD, I'm leaving it up to you. You are going to send it to me. I'm not looking for the right intentions anyway. I'm trying to find a way out of Barbados, but if I'm doing a PhD, I should do it because I really want to and not just to get out of Barbados. So I'll continue doing my thing and you do what you're doing up there, but I'll, I'm leaving it up to you. So I'm doing my thing. Three months have gone by, making excellent uh, progress. I'm about to prepare my first manuscript with my workmates and it's a really exciting time. And three months go by and I'm at the university in this place I wouldn't usually be. And I randomly bump into one of my professors from undergrad. And we exchange pleasantries. We're both surprised to see each other at this particular point. And then, you know, we, we talk about what I'm doing, what she's doing, the work that I'm doing and how much I love it. And then she says, well, Sean, there's this professor from Canada that I know. Maybe you can exchange email addresses and talk about your next steps, your career. Because, yeah, I know Barbados is quite small, not many opportunities for you to excel academically. So I said, OK, yeah, great. Thank you. So we exchanged contact information. And a few hours after that, I found myself in the same place, actually. And she was there also, both in passing. And we both looked at each other in surprise and we laughed like, what are you doing here? And she then told me that the professor from Canada that she was talking about earlier was actually in her office, like at that same moment. So she said, do you want to chat with this professor? And honestly, I was really hungry, like <laughs> so hungry. And yeah, I just, I had a lunch date and I had no plans to be going to talk to anyone from Canada or anyone, period. So I said, yes. So all of these thoughts are going through my mind, but I still said yes. So I eventually walk with her. I go to her office, nice, cozy office, gently lit. There are papers all over her desk that she has to grade. And across from her desk, there's this woman with short hair, a bright orange shirt, warm smile and personality. And I'm assuming that this is the professor from Canada. 
So we gently talk, we exchange like what we're both doing. I talk about my research, she talks about hers and the amazing project she's working on with breast cancer in black women across the globe. And I'm thinking, wow, this is such an amazing project. So we continue talking and at some point she looks me dead in the eyes and says, Sean, I think you'd be a great fit for my lab. Do you want to start your PhD in September? And I'm like, what? Um, okay, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, do you mean September of next year? Because right now it's me. And she said, no, this year. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, sure, sign me up. But in my mind, it's like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to apply for this PhD program in just four months? So it takes me some time. I'm thinking about this because I haven't been in a, a, a hard molecular science lab in three years at this point. So it's taken me some time about if I really, really want to do this. So I finally come to the decision. I send in my very, very late application and I'm, you know, very nervous about this. But I eventually get accepted to McMaster University for graduate school. Now, this didn't just land in my lap, though. I still had to go through the appropriate channels of being interviewed by Dr. Daniel. I still had to like send in my grace to be accepted to the now most research intensive university in Canada. And I was so nervous about everything, but we did it. So now I'm in Canada. And a lot of things are going through my mind. I'm so far away from my family. I the food is different, like the temperature, I can't, I've never experienced winter. <laughs> All of these things are going through my mind. And on the flip side, I'm also thinking, well, you know what, Sean, Canada, there are endless opportunities there for you um, career-wise. And you could also be yourself. You can hold hands on the street with whoever you want to. You can kiss whoever you want to. You can do anything without anyone knowing or feeling any kind of shame or embarrassment. No one knows you. So I remember vividly my first ever drag show in Canada and I just stood in that room looking around and I'm seeing drag queens with a full face of makeup. They're splitting on the floor, they're <laughs> dancing and I'm like, what is this? I was so uncomfortable because I've never been in an environment like that because I'm coming from this small Christian conservative um, island and I'm in a room with drag. <laughs> so it was a very stark difference for me. And I just stood there for like about an hour until I fully felt comfortable and accustomed with that environment. And I went from that in 2015 to co-producing and, and performing in the first ever Science is a Drag show in Canada. And, and I remember about to step on that stage and I was covered from head to toe, bedazzled in rhinestones, six inch heels, a bodysuit, about to lip sync to my fave Robin Rihanna Fenty. And <laughs> I felt so liberated, so confident, so comfortable and ready to talk about my science in drag. So here I am now, this Bajan boy has made it through four winters unscathed. Yeah, I did it. <laughs> and you know, I've, and my prayer was answered. I realized this, that my prayer was answered, that small prayer I made in LA. I didn't even notice it when I met the professor, Dr. Daniel, but I noticed it when I moved here. There was one day I was in the lab just 
doing experiments and it dawned on me that my prayer had been answered. And I'm so, so thankful for that. And I can be whoever I want to be. I've learned that um, that the less the path less traveled is hard, but so, so worth it. And I've also learned to accept all parts of me, the great parts, the not so great parts, the odd and the queer parts, and just being comfortable with myself. And this was all done through the support of my supervisor, Dr. Daniel, my lab mates, my friends, and I am forever grateful for that. So I've made it through my first year here because of them, and I'm about to make it through my last. That was Sean Hercules. Sean is currently a biology PhD candidate at McMaster University. He investigates the epidemiology and genetics of an aggressive form of breast cancer disproportionately affecting women of African ancestry. After moving to Canada from the island of Barbados, Sean quickly got involved with Let's Talk Science and in communicating science via social media. Most recently, he co-produced and participated in the first ever Science is a Drag show, presenting science in drag. Thank you, Sean. Our next story is from Emma Young. It was recorded in September 2019 at Caveat in New York City. The theme of that night was role models. The summer of 2010, I arrived in the Goose Nest Ranger District to survey northern spotted owls. Uh, I was there on behalf of the Forest Service. They needed to know where the owls were nesting because they're a threatened species because the Forest Service cuts down trees. You see where I'm going. Uh... So this is where I came in, right? I'm the person who's supposed to find the owls. And uh, I had, I was, I, I arrived and we're in the, the tippy top smack center of Northern California. It's like grass, trees, rocks, hills, and really not a lot else going on. Um, and I'd driven across country from New York for this job. This was my first real big job in college. It wasn't bagel slicing or camp counseling, which is what uh, my previous experience, uh, work experience was. And uh, I was really excited. You know, I was going to put this work into my biology degree I was getting. Um, little did I know what I was getting into it at the time. A lot of school after college for that. Um, and... You know, I I was this uh, I was this badass bitch because I just learned how to drive stick so I could drive the big forest service trucks, which I did. And uh, you know, I I got, I got my first pair of cargo pants, which is a very important time for a biologist when they get their their first pair of cargo pants. So many pockets. And yeah, I was just really excited, felt mature, ready to go. I was gonna get Nat Geo all up in Northern California. So. On the first day I arrived, I was unpacking in my government-issued double-wide trailer. Yes, biology is very glamorous. And I was unpacking, and I hear a knock on my door. And my my roommate wasn't supposed to arrive for another two days. And I had, literally hadn't met a single other person, didn't know anybody, so I didn't know who to expect when I opened the door. So I opened the door, and it's this big red-headed dude who says he... I actually don't remember his name, so I'm, I'm just going to call him the firefighter, because he says he's a firefighter for the Forest Service. He lives across the street, and he'd see me unpacking. 
And like before I even had my footing in the conversation, you know, I was like, what's happening? Uh, he he asked me if I wanted to get dinner that night um, down the road in Doris, which is like the nearest, you know, human habitation. We are living in the, literally the middle of nowhere. Uh, was, you know, just get pizza or whatever. And, you know, I sort of reflexively say yes, because, um, you know, it's good to make friends. I didn't know anybody, didn't want to be rude. Um, so, yeah, so so we, we make plans for that night. And and I didn't think too much about it. I had, like, some slight misgivings as he was walking away, because I realized I didn't know if he meant, like, oh, dinner with a fun group of firefighters, yes, please, or, uh, you know, just dinner with him. Um, <laughs> it's good to make friends. So, you know, I had these sort of misgivings, but whatever. So he shows up at dusk as we planned, and, and it was indeed just him in the truck. And um, so I get in, and as we turn onto the the lonely stretch of highway that connects our outpost to the rest of the world, I see that this road is uh, straight as a pin and through miles of quickly darkening nothingness. So we turn onto the road, and as he's driving, he starts, you know, telling me about himself, and he just sort of, you know, keeps going. Uh, he was twice my age. Okay. Uh, he had been in the army. He had been dishonorably discharged for beating someone with a broom handle. So I'm like, Jesus Christ. Uh, he had spent time in prison. So at this point, I'm like, fuck. Okay. Uh, and he was a reformed neo-Nazi. Yeah. So, you know, I remembered how, you know, I was this cargo pants wearing badass bitch that morning, but now I just felt uh, really stupid <laughs> for getting into his car. You laugh, but I was terrified. Uh, and, you know, so, so yeah, I, 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 you know, felt this fear and, and I knew that I should do something to take control in that situation, but I just sort of felt frozen. So um, I just sort of list the facts that, that I can, you know, I'm a scientist, right? List the facts um, just to kind of keep plugged into what's happening. So um, nobody knows where I am or who I'm with. Uh, I don't know where Doris is. so I don't know if he's actually taking me where he says he's going. Um, it's so vacant in the valley and it's very dark at night uh, there's literally not one person that i can call to come pick me up and this guy is twice my size easily and i have nothing no skills to defend myself with there's a pocket knife in my purse so that i don't really know how to use it's you know so that's th those are my my assets in that moment and I don't really remember a lot of the next hour or so. Um, what I do remember is that we did indeed make it to Doris. And we did indeed eat really, really terrible pizza. And my memory kind of checks back in. You know, I had this loop of concepts playing in my head, these facts over and over again. And my memory checks back in when he drops me back off of my trailer. Completely unharmed. He didn't lay a finger on me at all. I go inside and I lock the door. I kind of slide to the floor, just absolutely shocked to be alive. You know, I thought my murder had finally arrived, and I was fine. <laughs> and, you know, I was appalled at myself, right? Because, like, I, I thought I was this badass, but I didn't even have the self-preservation to... Well, I didn't know what to do in the moment when, when the moment arrived, and then I didn't even have the self-preservation to do something about it when we were, like, at this restaurant with other people, right? I was just like, okay, and then got back into his car. And I just felt like this, you know, warm, 
cloak that college had wrapped around me of like safety and security and all these good things had been ripped violently away and the world was big and it was scary and I was an idiot and didn't know what I was doing. So I, I felt small and I felt afraid and I felt really angry at myself for putting myself in that situation. And I started working from the Forest Service the next night. Um, and I say night because owls are awake at night. You got to go to the owls. So you work at night. And uh, what our work mostly involved was driving down these forest roads in the mountains around the valley. And we would stop at predetermined call points is what they were called because you'd stop and you'd play owl calls out of your truck and you'd wait for a response. And if they if the owl sang back at you, you'd be like, owls are here. And then you do other stuff later, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> but that's what most of our work was. And I, I loved it. Owls are so freaking cool, you guys. I have one tattooed on my back now. It's a whole thing. Everyone thinks it's Hedwig. Whatever. It's not. <laughs> Basic ass owl. Whatever. Okay. Yeah. I went there. I love Harry Potter. Anyway, whatever. Um, so, yeah. So, but sometimes we couldn't access call points because they were on deserted roads that you couldn't drive down anymore. So, when that would happen, we would get out of the truck and we'd walk to the call points and bring our speaker with us. And nothing made me feel as small and as in insignificant as hiking through this inky black wilderness. I mean, we I've never been so remote up to this point in my life. And, you know, I, I, I'd been so excited to explore those mountains, you know, when I had arrived just a few days ago and, 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 and you know, my cargo pants and the whole thing. And now I just felt like I was afraid of the dark or something. You know, in, in a matter of days, I had spanned that, that transition so I was having like an identity crisis and the owls were cool and, and that kind of kept me on board. And also I'd driven across the country, right? This was my big moment. I was leaving the nest to do cool things and be a scientist. And so I was like, all right, we got to just buckle down. Like I'm going to get this done. So younger or more inexperienced members of the team, me, uh, were paired with, with older, more senior members, what have you. And that's how I met Matt for the first time. And around the time that I met him, um, you know, I wasn't sure what to think of him. He was like really funny and sarcastic. He always had a baseball hat on. He, uh, I think he dipped, you know, he had like chewing tobacco, which I was like, okay. Um, and so I didn't know what to think of him, but, but pretty soon after I met him, I, I witnessed him chopping the head off of a rattlesnake with a shovel. Um, and I was like, damn, Matt, like, that's cool. So I started thinking like, you know, he might be a good person to ask about self-defense. Um, you know, I knew that he hiked every weekend alone hunting bears with his dog, Banjo. Again, Matt, like, that's pretty legit. So, uh, but I was too embarrassed to be like, well, hey there, sailor. I noticed you're a cool hand with an edge weapon. Care to show a gal how to stab a man in the face? <laughs> just girly things you know <laughs> you know I didn't I didn't want to seem like the weak link in in our professional relationship I didn't want to seem unprofessional I didn't want to seem vulnerable so instead I asked about self-defense from wildlife um and basically like he was super excited and he was like absolutely I know lots of stuff so within a couple minutes of my request he was cheerfully teaching me how to shove my pocket knife into the eye socket of a 150 pound mountain lion <laughs> an imaginary one obviously um, and it turns out it's really easy. You just stab and you twist and you pop. And then the eye's out. <laughs> Ladies, listen up. 
<laughs> so, um, and I was afraid of, of animals at first, right? There, I felt this primitive fear reawaken walking through the, the blackness of the California wilderness that I have already mentioned. And, and it was just me and Matt and this crackling radio that we had connecting us to the outside world. There was not even cell service. So, you know, I felt this this fear of being stalked, right? Of, of worrying that outside the beam of my flashlight, there were invisible eyes watching me. It's a very real and very innate fear. Um, and I felt it reawaken. But, um, you know, as I said, tamp it down, like gotta, gotta do your job, right? So as the summer wore on, you know, I learned that, um, you know, what mountain lion habitat looks like. It's very specific. So, you know, like where there might be mountain lions, where there probably aren't bears or wusses, black bears, like just total pushovers, not a big deal at all. Um, so, you know, I, I started, you know, realizing that I wasn't exactly afraid of animals, right? Because, uh, you know, I was the one intruding where they live and I was loud and clumsy and, you know, animals don't want anything to do with that. So they just get out of the way. So, you know, as the summer wore on, I stopped looking for eye shine in the dark. Um, but when I would feel nervous, I would, you know, hold my knife in my pocket and I would remember stab, twist, and pop. <laughs> and I'd feel better for a while. But... You know, that stalking sensation never went away. And I was really confused because I was like, okay, well, I know how to use my knife now. You know, I'm out with Matt. Uh, I'm not afraid of lions or bears. You know, I should feel in control. But I really didn't. And I couldn't really place why. And then, uh, you know, part, part way through the summer, uh, we were walking to a, a call point that wasn't accessible by a car. So, you know, my favorite. I'm super on guard, like feeling real tense. And my flashlight beam picks up something in the road or the path, I guess, in front of us that we're walking down. And so I, I go to inspect and I see that it's a shoe print. Perfect. Recent. As if a person had stood there and evaporated. And that single, seemingly inconsequential thing, you know, the, the footprint was, was leading in the direction we were walking and I didn't see any footprints coming back out. And it froze me with fear. And I was just like, fuck, I'm not afraid of animals in the woods. I'm afraid of people. Because like I said before, animals predictable. You can, you know what's up. You can get data and figure out where they're at and what they're doing. And you can expect how they'll react to you. But the behavior of a person is much harder to place, right? And if you run into a person in the woods at night, the list of benign reasons they might be there is very short, right? There's... <laughs> There's hunting, camping, hiking, you know, those are all kind of interrelated. That's about it, where we were anyway. And the list of scary reasons is so much longer. And if you ran into someone, you really had no way, or if I ran into someone, there was no way of me knowing, right? And that really made me feel like prey, essentially. But, you know, push it down, push it down. Got to keep working, got to keep working. And, you know, we did know people were around, right? Um, we'd, we'd had training to recognize uh, meth trash. And uh, I'm serious. And uh, marijuana grow operations, um, both perils of the backwoods and usually involving people who might be threatening you in some way. Uh, we had special radio channels to, you know, keep in touch with uh, the Forest Service and other folks for our safety. And we worked in pairs, um, which is why I was always out with Matt. You know, this was all for our safety. So, you know, we had all this training, but we never really saw anything more definite than that footprint. 
And a few weeks after, you know, all of sort of the footprint and all this other stuff, towards the end of the summer, um, we had a meeting before work and we were warned to keep an eye out for a station wagon. It had been sighted around the mountain where we were working, or mountains, and it seemed like somebody was living out of it on the old forest roads. And the report really gave me goosebumps because, you know, this wasn't like a, a beautiful, like, place that took your breath away. You know, you're coming up from San Francisco after a hard week and you want to have, like, fresh air. You know, it was, like, dry, very remote, not very beautiful, no gushing waterfalls, you know, no, like, beautiful this and that. It was very fire prone, you know. It just, I couldn't imagine what type of person would want to be up there alone night after night in the dark. So a few days after that, Matt and I were driving to a call point at night and our headlights pick up a glint in the road ahead of us. And it's the station wagon, obviously. And because of course it would be. And so we, you know, we drive by it really slowly. We're kind of cruising to see what, what's going on, expecting to see a person, you know, camped out in the back of it, but it was empty. And we sort of paused to radio in our find to headquarters. And while we're waiting for a response, I sort of reach over really casually and lock the doors of our truck. And I felt like I was in a horror movie and I was peeking through my fingers, you know, waiting for the jump scare, but it was my life. And so we get a response from HQ, you know, radio crackles and, and they tell us, you know, with no uncertain terms to vacate the area immediately and to conduct no further call points on that route. And I turned to Matt and I, you know, I asked him, where the person whose car it is might be if they're not with their vehicle in the middle of the night. And I expect him to kind of laugh or brush it off, which is kind of his way. You know, he had a really older brotherly sort of vibe. But he uh, he just looked out into the dark that was pressing in on our truck. And I just look, you know, kind of wildly around into the trees expecting to see a human shape, you know, watching us from the woods. But I couldn't see anything. And I just felt like, you know, my foot was dangling off the edge of my bed, but I couldn't pull it back under the covers. And I grabbed my knife in my pocket, stab, twist, and pop. But it didn't help. And then I looked over at Matt. You know, I really looked at him, and he wasn't afraid exactly, but he was definitely perturbed. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of was like, Maybe encountering people, you know, where they shouldn't be in the woods is like a serious thing, right? Matt was taking it seriously. The Forest Service was taking it seriously. There were all these preventative measures to protect us. Um, so maybe, you know, my own fear wasn't this like shameful thing that I had to hide all the time, right? And I've been feeling this small shamefulness around that fear the entire summer, ever since, you know, I've been in the firefighter's truck and I felt so helpless I'd, I'd put myself into harm's way that day and, and I'd been carrying that fear and that guilt around with me in the forest, hiding it, and it was so heavy. But the fear that I was, you know, I was feeling was a, a, a natural response to a perceived threat. And that, that learning that I had done was a, as concrete a thing you could do as learning how to use a knife to stab and twist and pop. 
So I turned to Matt and I said, hey, um, I'm really freaked out by that. And instead of, you know, poking fun at me or teasing or whatever, Matt just like told me stories about nothing while we drove to a call point on a different route. And when we arrived, he looked over at me. I think we both knew that I was still really afraid. But I grabbed my knife. I got my ass out of the truck and stepped into the dark. Thank you. That was Emma Young. Emma is a Knaus Marine Policy Fellow with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Washington, D.C. She moonlights as a Ph.D. candidate and science communicator at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, where she studies avian malaria. She enjoys hoarding plants and shouting about how much she loves science. She is also the founder of Science Distilled, a bi-monthly science happy hour in St. Louis, and perhaps most importantly to me at least, a story collider producer. We are so grateful to Sean and to Emma for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is led by me, Executive Director Liz Neely, and by Artistic Director Aaron Barker. We couldn't do all this without our Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Gastor Almonte, Aaron Barker, Misha Gajewski, and Jesse Hildebrand. The podcast is edited by senior podcast editor John Chen with the help from Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Burdock Brewery and to Caveat for hosting our shows. And special thanks to all of you for anybody who is independent, is seeking independence, is perhaps tired of being out on their own. Thanks for listening. Take care. <laughs>